Welcome back to another episode of the Hurt Podcast. So last week in part one of our season finale, we discussed all things fertility with Dr. Jennifer Blakemore, and our conversation covered topics about the demographics of who pursues egg and embryo freezing, the difference between egg and embryo freezing and IVF, U.S. statistics regarding fertility both over the decades as well as through the pandemic, the pros and cons of fertility testing, lifestyle factors that affect fertility, and much more. So this week, we're going to continue our discussion, so stay tuned to get more of your questions answered. Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome back, Dr. Blakemore. So I think our discussion last week really dove into fertility and highlighted, I think, for many women that you are not alone. So let's start with, so what does the fertility process look like? You know, all in, I would say the first step and sometimes the hardest step, I think, for people is just to make the consultation to start talking about it. It feels like a big barrier in some way, but I I urge everyone, I think, for people who are feeling nervous about taking that step, like it's just a conversation. You just start talking with someone about what's involved and whether or not you pursue it or not. It's just like an information-based part of things. Um, But at the consultation, you'd start with the discussion. You usually do an ultrasound through the vagina to evaluate the uterus and the ovaries um, and then check your hormone levels. We've been talking about AMH and FSH and whatnot. Um, You then decide on a protocol with your doctor. And usually that setup can take at least a month or two um, just to figure out who you are from a hormonal perspective. Are you on birth control? Are you not? And kind of game planning your timeline. Um, But the actual physical process of freezing eggs or freezing embryos is pretty standard overall. It takes about, I would say, 10 to 12 days of daily hormone injections. I think that is the scariest part for most people, especially if they've never done shots before, which is completely understandable. Um, But I would also say that most centers now are really good about you have videos, you have resources, like they try to make it really user-friendly overall. Um, Those 10 to 12 days of shots are conjointly with multiple visits to the office so we can track how well the ovaries and the eggs are growing. Um, And then followed by a minor procedure that's usually done in an office um, where we remove the eggs with a small needle through suction through the vagina. So it's not a big surgery that requires like cutting or stitches or anything like that. It's kind of like getting an IV, except it's instead of through the arm, it goes through the vagina. (laughs) Um, And, you know, as a proponent for all things, I don't think anyone should ever have to feel a needle in their vagina. So you do get anesthesia for the procedure. Um, But it's a pretty minor procedure. It's, you know, very safe, 1% of risk of complications. You go home same day. And then I usually say there's about a week of what I call hormone recovery, where you still feel a little bit bloated, a little bit of like pelvic discomfort. I used to make the joke that it might be the work from home phase, which is not funny anymore with COVID. (laughs) So now I call it the sweatpants with the scrubs phase of of things. Um, But by the time you get your period after the procedure, which usually comes about a week or a week and a half later, you're hormonally back to a baseline. It's like nothing has ever happened to you. Um, And all the data really shows that longevity-wise, there's no impact to your health or your fertility or your reproductive tract um, in the future. Excellent. I mean... 
I went through that uh, a few months ago. So familiar um, in terms, but you know, you don't really fully know what something feels like uh, until you actually go through it yourself. And I, you had told me all of this in great detail in terms of kind of what to expect, but it is different when you're going through it because, uh, you know, I remember uh, my arms were bruised from having to get blood draws like every other day. My lower abdomen was completely bruised. I had little hard knots in there, little bruises, just from having to inject hormones two to three times a day. And also having an ultrasound, a transvaginal ultrasound, which can feel invasive when you're having it definitely done so often. Definitely. But overall, I would say that it was a very smooth experience. It basically felt what you told me was going to feel like. So, so it was like what I expected it to feel like, but I will say there were a few things that I wasn't expecting, which is really just like, um, how I felt during it. Like I felt very tired. I was expecting to feel bloated because, you know, all of the hormones, my ovaries are obviously getting bigger. So I'm going to feel very bloated. I felt a lot more bloated than I thought I would in the sense that, uh, you know, you woman always basically feels bloated during a period, but this was so much more than just period bloat. Like it felt like, uh, things didn't like quite fit the same way. You can't like, I don't know, use shapewear to make yourself yep. look, look, yep, uh, that's all correct. as good as you want, because there's yep. no way to suppress it. And then, um, I also just felt extremely, uh, tired the first, uh, the, not so much the first week, more in that second week, I felt extremely tired. Are these common symptoms? What symptoms might a woman sort of expect to feel with those hormonal changes happening? Yeah, I think you're spot on. It's interesting. I kind of say that like, it's like a one month hormone event, the same way that pregnancy is like a nine month hormone event. And it kind of changes over time. But when those hormones of pregnancy or, or reproductive hormones rise, the lethargy or the exhaustion, because your body's just working harder. And so the energy and the metabolism requirement is, is much up there. And it's, I think the same reason if anyone out there has been pregnant before that in the first trimester, you feel ridiculously exhausted all of the time. And you could sleep like 12 hours and it feels like you have not slept at all. And you are just that tired when you wake up. Um, so that's a very common one. Um, the bloat is for real. There is no way around that. <laughs> I also like to tell people like, and this is sometimes hard to hear, but you gain probably about 10 pounds of water weight in that month, mm-hmm. which Absolutely. you eventually pee out. Like it, it metabolizes you diurese at the end, but it's hard. Like 10 pounds of water weight feels like 10 pounds of water weight. And there's, right. there's not any spanks or anything that makes that any no. better at all. And it um, took several months for that to yeah. completely resolve. Yep. Um, I definitely right after for probably, I would say like a month or so, I was still feeling, um, not as bloated, but I was still feeling pretty bloated. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, and you know, it's interesting. I think the, the last, or like the, one of the bigger questions I sometimes get is about the mood part of things, since obviously there's a big association with reproductive hormones and mood. Um, and I like to make the analogy that I kind of call it the law of thirds, um, that a third of people, just like some people who love being pregnant and it's like their favorite thing. Um, a third of people feel good on the hormones. A third of people feel exactly the same mood wise. And a third of people, it's a harder time frame for it where you feel a little bit more sad. It's like a harder mood swing, mood shift part of things. Um, but it's not always the people you think. So I still tell people who have any history of a mood disorder, depression, anxiety, whatever it might be, the law of thirds actually still applies, meaning a third of them feel good. 
the same or worse. Um, but I think if that's another fear that some people have, that it's not necessarily going to be that bad necessarily for everyone. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Are there things that you can't do during this time frame for, for, for about this three weeks to a month period of time? Can you travel? Not that we're traveling anywhere really, but <laughs> unfortunately right now, can you travel? Can you exercise? Uh, really good question. So the answer is no. We ask for restrictions on a couple of different things. So mostly because the ovaries are swollen part and there's obviously risk when the ovaries are swollen. So we ask to help keep them in place, quote unquote, for um, no intercourse, no travel, and no exercise, mostly to protect the ovaries. But once you get your period back, and especially if you still feel bloated, you're fine to kind of exercise again and do whatever helps you to feel more normal. Um, the other things we ask for, obviously, during the cycle are no alcohol and no other other things that you're while your body's processing hormones and medications. In terms of the alcohol, I have had several friends go through this process and not everyone was told to not have alcohol. I'm assuming it's not because it's affecting your fertility, but just more because your body's working really hard, like you said, to process everything else. And so the alcohol might hit you a little differently than it would otherwise. Yep, exactly. It's actually not for the eggs. It's that your liver processes alcohol and also processes your reproductive hormones in these medicines. So your liver is just literally in hyperdrive for that amount of time. Fair enough. Yeah. I would say that overall, the experience was kind of what I expected it to be. And it, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was, it was going to be in the sense that it was pretty seamless. And I do think that having a little more time, especially now is the great time to do it because, um, you know, you do have to keep up with a lot of appointments and you do have to kind of even, even if you're, when, even when you're injecting hormones, it has to be, you know, morning and evening and, you know, sometimes only morning, sometimes only evening. It's, it's really tailored to how your body is responding. And so you have to keep up with all of that. And so you have to kind of be available to do these things. And also, you know, even just starting your cycle, like, like for me, even when I just started this whole thing, like my, um, my period is extremely regular. It comes, you know, at pretty much exactly the same time every month. And this, that month that I was going to start, maybe in anticipation, I don't know. It started a couple of days early and I was like on the fence. I'm like, this is not, I'm not used to that. It's not supposed to come early. So maybe it's not really, you know, I was almost tricking myself into thinking like, oh, it's probably not my, my real period probably hasn't started, but I reached out to you anyway. And that was very lucky because uh, the next I reached out to you we went ahead and did blood work. You told me to start the hormones. And before I could even start the hormones by the next day, it was like, you know, you were like, start the hormones the next day. And I was like, okay. And by the next morning, it was like a full period. And I was like, if I hadn't kept on top of that or been, you know, paying attention to that, it's very easy to miss that cycle. And then now you have to push it back another month. So that's definitely something for women to like, kind of have to keep track of too. So you have to have the time, the mindset, the time frame to be able to do that. Right. I, you know, I think that's a really like beautiful point. I kind of call it like an investment month. You're investing in your cycle and your outcome. So it's hard to not be able to do all the things and have to be flexible with your time and devote. But if you do all of that, the outcomes are there. And so it's just mostly focusing that like, this is your egg or embryo month. Right. And that's <laughs> going to be the priority for that month, which is fine. Cause it's, it's a short or finite period of time. Um, but you have to dedicate to yourself to get your out there outcomes that you want. Right. For me, I think I was actually most nervous about the anesthesia, which uh, is hilarious because I'm an anesthesiologist, (laughs) but that's probably why, because it's like whatever field 
no matter what your profession is, like whatever field you are in, in general, I feel like you, um, you know, everything that can go wrong in Definitely. it and you know, everything Definitely. that you need to watch out for in it. And so automatically, like, that's what you might be most nervous for. So that's what I was most nervous for just because I was like, well, I'm, you know, theoretically, uh, I should be just fine because totally. I'm, you know, you know, all the things, right. And like, we have a certain classification for how we categorize patients based on their health. And so for that, it's like, I'm a quote unquote ASA one, which is the American study of anesthesiology's category for one, meaning like healthy, no medical problems. And so right. ASA one patients for an anesthesiologist is like your dream patients because totally. you know, you're like, Oh, they're usually young and healthy. Great. You know, you, you have to, you have not that you would pay any less attention by any means, but you just have a little bit less of the worry that you do with someone who's a lot sicker automatically. And so theoretically it's like, it should be just fine. But even then it's, you know, irrational sort of fear just because you know, all the possibilities, Definitely. but, uh, it was definitely the best nap I've ever had. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so and now you can fantastic. say that. All of I can say too. that. I was like, <laughs> since then I was like, now I've actually experienced it myself. And, uh, I was like, you know what? I'm pro, I'm pro <laughs> not definitely. just in delivering it, but also, uh, experiencing it felt wonderful. <laughs> so. good. Yeah, I, I, I make that joke to patients. I said, you know, you've put in all the hard work, you've done all these shots, you've done all the things. Now you get a really, really wonderful nap. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so all in all, you know, I would say that it's definitely a, if it's something that I think for um, women that might be concerned about their fertility in some way, and so many women that are, that are concerned about it or do think about it in some way, because it does kind of quote unquote, like, quote unquote, like creep up on you in a way where you're, you're so, you're not thinking about it because you're focused on other things. And then all of a sudden you think about it one day and you're like, Oh, maybe I should address this. I definitely think that undergoing, um, you know, egg freezing or embryo freezing, um, is a great option if you have that as an option. But for a lot of women, I feel like they may not have that as an option. Um, how expensive is this process? I had read that it's between, 12 to 20,000. And that was definitely the case for me more on the latter end because New York city. So it's automatically, I'm sure going to be more expensive based on where you're doing it. But that in the U S at least those were the average costs. It's a lot lower in other countries, but yeah. And there's not anything different in the other countries or you're the same medication, same everything, but it is a lot more expensive here. Why is it so expensive here? And you know, what can women do are there options, um, for those who want to undergo this or those who, um, either are in terms of age or have cancer or other diagnoses that they may want to, um, get a hold, get ahead of this and go ahead and freeze their eggs. But the cost is prohibitive. Yeah. It's a really good question. I think, you know, it's all things in medicine, especially with all things with the United States of America, I think yeah. that the, the the function of you know running the laboratory, running of all the things, just requires an increased price hike to make sure that we can take care of you and take care of your reproductive tissue the right way because it involves so much very precise and you know ridiculously optimally timed kind of training and and freezing and all of that. Um, and I, I think I hope and I urge as the world evolves and more and more um, companies and insurances are gonna, hopefully going to cover this for people. Um, but outside of that, there are a, a couple of other options that I think are available to people if you're interested in this. And the main 
pro, you know, prohibitive factor is cost. So there are a couple of grant programs are out there that kind of offer people mostly for people with um, cancer or other medical conditions that would affect their fertility. Um, but there are other grant programs out there for all people who, you know, just want to get involved and want to take charge. We, we partner at my center with um, a loan program or other bundling programs to try to help it make it a little bit more affordable, depending on what your goals are in like a long-term kind of sense. Um, but I think also there's different programs with medicines and different, you know, pricing out through different pharmacies and other things um, that will try to get the medicine cost down part of things. Cause there's a, obviously a cycle fee or not, I guess not, obviously there is a cycle fee and then a medication fee and then a storage fee. So um, all of that can, can climb overall. Um, but I, I, you know, there's a big part of my field that does a lot with advocacy that we think this should be a part of everybody's journey for those who want it, especially those for with fertility preservation for medical needs like cancer or even things that require medicines that affect fertility like rheumatoid arthritis or other things that involve immune therapy that can affect ovaries um, that hopefully that will continue to change to make it more affordable for people. Absolutely. I did like that even the, um, in terms of the medications, that the medications themselves were extremely expensive. And I'm sure this varies by state, yep. but at least in New York or New York city, I can say like, you know, the, my medications and everyone that I know in New York that, you know, my friends who went through this themselves, the medications did cost about 5,000 us dollars. And that's something that no matter what, like doesn't seem to get covered, which is kind of crazy because how do you do the cycle without it? But you know, so it doesn't make sense why some places might cover the cycle portion of it, but not cover the medication, but either way that was the cost. And I did like the fact that, you know, you, you may not use all of the medications at the end, but you do have to have all of them in case you need them because, you know, you were, you know, checking, um, checking the ultrasound, checking blood work every other day and changing the care based on that. And so you may end up using them. And for me, there were, you know, a lot that I didn't use at the end. Um, and I, it was nice that I had the option to donate those medications. And I think that's great because it's such a great way for women that may not be able to afford it. If they, if more people that, um, go through this and have paid for the medications themselves, but then who don't have use for the remainder can just donate it and somebody else can make use of it. Yeah. And pass it forward to, you know, as a good deed for all people. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, it is overall expensive, especially in the U S and doesn't quite make sense why it's so expensive here versus other countries where the cost is much lower but it does sound like there are some programs in place for for women who meet maybe meet certain criteria. So that's definitely something that you should you know women should should check out. So that's yeah, that's good. Yep. And I think that's also part of again getting to know your body. That sometimes you know if you if you see change over time or you have different levels or different indications, age, medical conditions, other things. That sometimes there's coverage in time or other things change. And so I think being on top of that and being proactive and taking charge of your story and your pathway is sometimes helpful as well. Do you see that changing in the future in terms of being covered more in terms of insurance or going backwards in some way? Do you see, do you see a change happening with that at all? You know, I hope so. I think so far the trend seems to be on a pathway more towards coverage. And I actually kudos to the big companies like Google and Facebook who are kind of taking power to say they're going to cover for their employees. And I think it's actually a wonderful 
recruitment tool that people are very invested in this. And that if you have coverage, that if you were deciding, for example, between two jobs and one offered fertility coverage and the other didn't, like maybe that's a sway in the right direction. Um, so I think that there's there has been slow inkling changing to offering more and more coverage. Whether I think it'll ever be 100%, which I hope, I can't say that I, I'm sure it ever will be, but I hope so. Um, I think that that trend, hopefully, as people, again, talk more about it, show that it's a priority and it's a helpful pair, part of healthcare, um, that I think people are healthier and happier when they meet all of their needs. And reproduction is a big part of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that's a really good point that, you know, in terms of needs, because that's not something that has been for a long time looked at by employers in any way um, as part of like a, a basic sort of human need might be to consider their own fertility. So right. the fact that it's slowly changing, that's that's a very fair point. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Absolutely. In terms of another part of that cost, uh, one thing that I haven't seen get covered in kind of any sense, and I could be wrong on this, but I haven't seen this, at least from, from what I was looking up and personally and everything was that genetic testing component of embryos. And uh, what's the average cost for that? And is that something that you recommend women go ahead and do in terms of, uh, once they've frozen their eggs, should they go ahead and genetically test the embryos or, or would it be okay if they skip that portion, um, and then try to implant and kind of see what happens? What does genetic testing give you? What what benefits, if any, does it give you? Question. And you know, I think it's interesting because the what I call PGT or pre-implantation genetic testing, which is where we take a, about five or six cells from the, the very small part of the embryo that creates the placenta. So we're not, you know, biopsying the part of that becomes the baby, but it's a helpful test. It's just kind of like for listeners who've ever heard of like an amniocentesis or some other testing during pregnancy to see the health of the pregnancy. We do that just before the embryo has gone in. So you can kind of give reproductive um, numbers or success rates overall. Um, it's a very controversial topic. I think it's, it's helpful for a lot of people. It's, sometimes not as helpful or not as important to other people. I think if you really want to know your reproductive potential and your reproductive success, it's really helpful because that the number, for example, let's say you, everybody has 10 embryos, everybody, um, that someone in their twenties would probably have five or six that are normal out of those 10 or be healthy to lead to pregnancy. And someone who's 41 or 42 might only have one. And so genetic testing of embryos doesn't change the fact that you have 10 embryos or 10 quote unquote tries to get pregnant. It just hopefully gets you to a pregnancy that is healthier and going to lead to a live birth faster or sooner so that you can select which one for transfer and hopefully also then reduces the risk of miscarriage or loss because the the number one risk of miscarriage in the first trimester is a chromosomal anomaly of the embryo so if you know that going in that embryo number one is has an abnormal chromosome count like a missing a chromosome or an extra chromosome for example an extra chromosome is like an extra 21 is down syndrome for example um that you can know that and make your reproductive decisions um so and i think it's also hard that you know everyone experiences that part differently a negative pregnancy test what it feels like to have a miscarriage or a loss you can't really put a price tag on those and so it really depends on your reproductive goals and what where you feel risk averse, risk prone, the cost. Um, and I think because it doesn't necessarily change your reproductive outcome, it just changes your reproductive timeline. That's, I think, a lot of why insurances don't cover it right now because it's not 
in their mind more medically necessary. Um, I hope that changes because I think it's a very helpful tool for people to plan their lives. Um, but I think that's why it's, it varies right now so much. Right. And, and every time you choose to implant an embryo, it's like another process to do that. It's not just a, you know, one and done try tomorrow. And then the next day. Yeah. Right. Like you, you still have to get ultrasounds and blood work in order to make sure that you're at that peak fertility level to where you're, it's going to be successful. And so, exactly, you know, if you have, let's say, like you said, those like 10 embryos, but only one of them was genetically, um, uh, quote unquote normal. And the other ones were much more likely to lead to like a miscarriage. Then you, if you had known that you'd want to start with that and not delay trying a whole bunch of other embryos that may not result in a successful pregnancy. Exactly. Exactly. And for some people like the, you know, the risk of loss is not, is not as important to them. And that's a very personal thing. And some people actually avoiding miscarriage is their number one priority. And that, and that's very personal too. And so I think that's where it comes into tailoring and talking with your doctor about what your goals are, what the coverage is, what the coverage isn't, um, and kind of what, what is important to you. But it's again, a very personal thing for all people. Absolutely. That, no, that's fair. I mean, there are so many factors that play into into that, you know, I think for, because with genetic testing, uh, you could also potentially know the sex. Absolutely. And so if you chose to, and so I think that might be a very, that's obviously a very personal decision also, whether or not something you want to know, whether it's not something that you, um, and you know, not to get, get too far off topic, but that can definitely be something that can be an issue depending on country also, um, where, you know, with the sex of the embryo. And so, that's something also that has to be very carefully um, thought of before, um, you know, having that be a factor in terms of global is issues that we won't get into right now. But those are definitely prevalent things. Those are things that still exist. And that's also like something to kind of watch out for in a way. Um, and so I can, there's so many, I feel like so many pros and cons with doing it. For me personally, uh, I did it. I wanted to um, mostly because I just, I, I've been medicine, one of those people where it's like the more information, the better. And so just in order to have like the best information possible, I wanted to go ahead and do it. Um, and, you know, and I, and I have friends who did undergo genetic testing and some that didn't want to know and they they chose not to and you know it really is a very very personal decision i mean this whole process is a very personal decision to begin with so. absolutely you know and i think more so than anything i think for the even for the people some people want to do the genetic testing but then don't want to know anything else about the embryos except that they have healthy embryos which is also totally fine i think sometimes the most helpful part is for people who opt to do it let's say you got a make up a number five embryos from your cycle and you could know right away that all five were unhealthy and that you were never going to have success right. with those. If right. you know that now, you don't go through the process of trying all five before you go to another, try at another cycle to make more embryos. And you potentially could prevent some, some failure in that sense. Um, but it's a very personal choice. It's also, you know, there's different nuances to the results of embryos, um, genetic testing and other things. So it's, it's a nuance that I think is very personal that you it's like a personal choice. And sometimes on a cycle to cycle basis, that sometimes you decide for or against in all different areas of your life and your reproductive planning and treatment, right? Um, which is totally fine and very good for lots of people. Awesome. I feel like we covered quite a bit. Yeah. 
This has been fantastic. I mean, so fun. I've learned so much. Also, as someone that's already in medicine, there were so many things that you mentioned that I did not know. And it's just so, it's so great to have someone um, who does this for a living to be able to kind of talk to all of us about this because there's so much misconceptions. Yeah. Um, there's so much misinformation on the internet, especially. And I think we often don't think about things in terms of how it's very individualized. Like just like, you know, when Albie and I talk about pain yeah. all the time, that's our jobs. Um, one thing we do emphasize is that, you know, it is very individualized. No two experiences are the same. Right. Uh, things are subjective in a lot of ways and you can't just kind of blanket be like, this is what's going to happen for you because this is what happens for everybody else. It does change by, by so many different factors. And here, you know, it's so many different factors in terms of, you know, your lifestyle, your age, your, where you are in your mental state and how you want to go about doing things, whether you want to freeze embryos, eggs, whether you're trying to do IVF, there's so many different factors that play into it. Yeah. And it's really great to hear that, um, these things are very tailored to each individual. And so yeah. the first thing they can really do is just make that consultation appointment to kind of figure out how it's going to be like for them specifically. Yeah. I think like that, that would be like my, my like tagline is I just urge people to like, just know about your body. Like knowing things um, is, is just powerful overall. And I think some people can feel scared that they might hear news they weren't prepared for, or that it could be scary in some way. But um, I, again, very much believe that knowledge is power and that it's your knowledge that when it's in the right hands, you get to make your own path. You get to decide what to do with that information or not, or not at all, which is also totally fine. But the only way to be an advocate for yourself is if you know, to begin with. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This was awesome. This was so this was so great. Very informative. Um, love to have you on this uh, in the future for potentially if we ever do a follow-up on this. Um, but for the time being, this was um, a big deviation from what we normally talk about, but it was really great. It's definitely something that we do like to focus on because we also like to focus on women's health in general. And this is a huge part of women's health. It's a huge part of knowing your own body, like you said. Thank you to everyone for joining us on season two of the Herc podcast. Dr. P and I have had a blast putting the season together and we hope to see you again for season three next year. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at the female pain docs at Gmail. If you have any topics in particular, you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.